Being a chef means keeping your cool in the kitchen. And with Resi Priority Notify and Global Dining Access through my Amex Platinum card, right this way, it's nice to try someone else's food for a change. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty, Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Crossover, an NBA show hosted by Sports Illustrated's Chris Mannix and Howard Back. It's a whole new level for you and me, Chris, this relationship. Like and subscribe for the best weekly NBA content these two are capable of. What does that mean? Could be the best duo ever. I don't see how you can beat that. Here they are, Chris Mannix and Howard Back. All right, Chris Mannix and Howard Beck, Crossover Podcast. What up, Beck? What's happening, Mannix? Well, it looks like we're having an all-star game this year. Um, I'm not sure how we're going to get to that point, but it looks like the NBA wants to have an all-star game this year. We're going to use this podcast to make our own all-star selections and kind of argue a little bit about some of the last few spots on each team. But I got to say, this whole process has been just a total mess and my biggest takeaway from the backlash that we've seen over the all-star game backlash that's come from the highest levels of the NBA where you've had LeBron James trash the idea of an all-star game Giannis Tentacumpo trash the idea of an all-star game player after player who either are candidates to be all-stars or automatic all-stars have suggested they want Nothing to do with it. So my takeaway, Howard, given that this is something that is negotiated between the union and the NBA, is is anybody swapping emails inside the union? Like if you're Michelle Roberts and Chris Paul, are you not having a conversation with LeBron James to make sure that he's on board or at the very least that he's not going to go out there and, you know, I'm sort of paraphrasing away, but call it an incredibly dumb idea. Like that, that was bizarre to me. Like that, you know, that there might be players with some reluctance to go to the all-star game is one thing, 
But to see player after player, beginning with the biggest star in the NBA, LeBron James, basically slap this idea down uh, was pretty remarkable to me. It is remarkable, and it's a little puzzling. There's two things that are puzzling about this, Chris. Um, one is that LeBron James could seemingly, at least by the tenor and content of his remarks, seemingly be caught off guard by this because Chris Paul's one of his closest friends. Chris Paul is the president of the Players Association. Chris Paul and Michelle Roberts, the executive director of the Players Association, are the two people whose voices uh, would be the, the most important in these discussions with the league. So that LeBron would seemingly be caught off guard is strange. Um, the other thing is that something else that LeBron said that I think is really important to note, which is that LeBron said, I think speaking on behalf of all of us, I didn't think there was going to be an all-star game. Like when they restarted the season in December and they'd already like killed all-star weekend in Indianapolis, which is where it would have been this year. It seemed to me that even though the, the NBA earmarked a five-day break between half you know, between 36-game schedules, that that would just be as a placeholder. Maybe you end up scheduling some games in there if you needed to, or it's just a break for players in this this you know tough season. Just give them a breather. Um, I don't think too many people believed that there would be an All-Star game, though, as has been pointed out to many many times, the All-Star game is in the CBA. It's in the collective bargaining agreement. And so it's not that the players and the, the league needed to get together to talk about how to have one. It would be that if anybody wanted to not have one, that's the discussion point. If the players decided we're opting out of having an all-star game, they have to go to the league and say, we don't want to do this. And then they're going to have to negotiate that. So I think that the way this has been framed publicly has confused people because it made it sound like there was a, like a, 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 assertive effort to create an all-star weekend. No, it's on the books. It's there until otherwise eliminated. And there's a cost to that. Now, the TV contract with Turner, which broadcasts all of all-star weekend and surely makes a boatload in ads and everything else. It doesn't carve out anything for all-star week. Like there's no specific price tag. Um, I've asked around best I can, 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 can surmise is that all-star weekend is worth tens of millions of dollars to the league and to Turner. Not, not past 100 million, but tens of millions. It's in the tens of millions. So remember, whatever that sum is, that goes into BRI, basketball-related income. That number is split 50-50 between the owners and players. And that's all the players. So back to the union. Why would the union still be pushing forward? Well, there are 450 players, most of whom do not have to go to Atlanta for this, all of whom still stand to benefit from the revenue that comes in that is split between owners and players. So, you know, if you decided you not to have it and you are going to the league and saying, we, we just don't want to do it. Our membership has decided this is not the right idea for safety purposes, for optics, whatever. There's going to be some cost to it. I don't know what it is, but again, it's worth tens of millions. So that might mean a payback to, to compensate Turner for the loss of, of, advertising opportunities and that's going to come not just from the teams that ultimately has to come from the players too it's coming out of bri so it's about the money it's always about the money it's also a tentpole event it's also a way to engage fans it is kind of like the nba super bowl in some ways in terms of the 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 attention it garners so i get it but there's a partial explanation for for where we are yeah and look 
people watch All Star. I don't. I, you know, not when I don't have to. I think it's kind of become <laughs> a goofy event. Uh, but people do watch 7.3 million viewers last time around. That's higher than any Christmas Day game the NBA had. The highest was Mavericks Lakers at 6.9 million. So people are watching. I'm not also overly concerned about health issues brought on by bringing players to Atlanta. My understanding is this will be very much in and out. It's not an all-star weekend. It's all-star like 36 hours. Like you get players in sometime the day before. You have the game. You have the event. Um, and then you get them out the next day. I, Given that the NBA is going to be on hiatus right then, I don't know that players are going to be any less safe than if they had been out there doing their own thing, especially when you consider that they'll be part of the NBA's health and safety protocols while they are uh, participating in this all-star event. I just think overall, the optics are just kind of goofy. Like, they're doing it in Atlanta in part because, yes, Turner is based down there and Turner can presumably put on an event um, while, you know, from their own home city a lot easier than if they had to pack up and take all their stuff uh, somewhere else. But now Georgia's one of the states and Atlanta's one of the cities that's allowing fans into the building. So they're going to be able to pull off an all-star game with some fans in the building. So they're trying to squeeze a little bit more money out of it that way. I I just don't love the optics out of any of it. I, I This to me felt like one of those, like, look, let's name an all-star team. Let's get 12 guys on the all-star team you can make all-star jerseys if you want and sell them. You can have all sorts of virtual all-star events, whether it's play NBA 2K with the top five guy. I don't know. Do something, you know, virtually. And then kick the can for all-star down the road. This just, given where we are in this country as we record this in early, almost mid-February, where we're not remotely close to getting this country back on track at this point, unfortunately. Given where we are, it just felt like the right thing to do would have been to punt. Now, I do think players are going to show up. And I say that because LeBron didn't close the door to it, right? Like LeBron said, all he had to say was, he said all he wanted to say about All-Star. And then he said, look, I'll be there physically, but not spiritually. The NBA is probably like, great, you're there physically. That's all we really need uh, from you. So if LeBron winds up going, I think all the other players like Giannis, like others uh, who have said uh, they weren't all that interested in it will wind up showing up. Uh, as well. So I, I think it it will go on. I just don't know that it's the best look. And I don't know it does I don't know if it does it gives the NBA the kind of PR balance it's hoping for and it gets out of most all-star games. Yeah, it, it's I, I don't like the optics and I don't like um, the the sense that the NBA which had really promoted itself as as the, the beacon of you know of of, of smart thinking since this whole thing began, right? They're the ones who shut down last March when Rudy Gobert had the positive test. Never mind, by the way, that they really had no choice, I thought, at that no point. No choice whatsoever. Um, but still, they, they did it. It did set off a cascade of events. Never mind that the Ivy League had already pulled the plug on stuff sooner and South by Southwest and some other, you know, entertainment venues had already and, and, and festivals had pulled the plug. But sure, the NBA was somewhat out front. Um, the NBA pulled off the bubble and was rightly praised for that. But the idea that the NBA is doing a, like, we're, we're going to follow the science and be ultra-responsible, be a leader in this. I mean, look, 
they, they've they've done a great job. Well, they've done a pretty good job with like the right messaging on masking and everything else, aside from the fact that coaches pull down their masks like a billion times a game. Um, but I just it, it's more that to to be consistent here, if it's about the science and it's about the virus and it's about doing what's right and what's safe, the highest possible uh, bar there is to not have the All Star Game. The next highest bar would be to have it, but to do it the way they're doing it. And look, this is what I want. I, I do think we should note this. In general, the NBA has done this right. They've had their issues like anybody else. They've had their problems, but a lot of the canceled games or postponed games so far have been out of an abundance of caution when they've uh, had guys quarantined or pulled from games because of contact tracing, not because of any of, of the of the virus itself. They've been conservative about it. They've been smart about it in general. So do I trust that the NBA will do this right, Chris, that they're going to have guys traveling privately, private jets there? No question. They're going to be in and out in like 24 to 36 hours or something. They'll be uh, limited to only the hotel and the arena. Like there won't, there, there will be very little chance for uh, infection or spread of the virus, I think, the way they're doing it. But there's always a chance. And so I think they'll probably pull it off. I think it will probably be fine. I think that I, tr I trust them to do the safest they possibly can. But as we know, the safest we possibly can is not always good enough. And we've heard endless stories for the last year of people who say, I thought I did everything right. I wore masks. I didn't go out much. I didn't see friends. I didn't go to, to the office. I didn't do this. I didn't do that. And I still got it. So it's, it still feels like an unnecessary risk. The all-star game is not that important, but easy for us to say it's not our tens of millions of dollars. I think abundance of caution should be the name of a book written about this season. That should be, <laughs> and and maybe it's the book that Kevin Durant writes because he has been part of the abundance of caution brigade over the last uh, two plus months of this year. But that's a topic for another day. Before we get into the All Star stuff, Howard, we did have a trade this week. The first uh, significant deal we've had in the NBA: Derrick Rose getting shipped from Detroit back to New York. Dennis Smith Jr. and a second round pick go to the Pistons. Uh, my instant reaction to this deal, Howard, was it's fine as long as Derrick Rose isn't sliding into the minutes occupied by Emmanuel quickly. Like, we, if you're the Knicks and you've been one of the surprise stories of the season, that's great. You want to give yourself a little bit of extra juice to make a run at the playoffs? Fine. But keep your eye on the ball here. The ball is making sure that the young players that are going to be part of your future get the minutes they need. I Look, if Derrick Rose winds up taking minutes occupied currently by Austin Rivers or Reggie Bullock or Alfred Payton, that's fine. Those guys are kind of in the same place in their respective careers. But if there's a couple of DNP CDs for Emmanuel quickly so Derrick Rose can get 28 minutes from Tom Thibodeau, his former coach, I I'm not so sure... I'm on board with that one, Howard. So give me your reaction to Rose to the Knicks. The first thing is this. I don't care what they gave up. They gave up Dennis Smith Jr., who most of the league had given up on long before the Knicks acquired him as part of the Porzingis deal. Dennis Smith Jr., Dennis Smith Jr. who was telling the Knicks, like, send me down to the G League bubble yeah. to get me playing time. So he wasn't yeah. a part of what to, they were doing one way or the other. No, to, to his credit, he, he, he wanted to do whatever it took. That's fine. The league, most of the league had moved on from Dennis Smith Jr. as a prospect before the Knicks even acquired him in the Porzingis trade and tabbed him as the key piece of that trade. So clearly he was not critical to them going forward. The second round pick, I think it's a pick from Charlotte that they're, that they're sending out. That's fine, whatever. 
Um, second round picks can be useful as, as trade chips, as we know. Um, they're very much a crapshoot in terms of getting an actual player. So I don't care anything that, that they gave up. It's, it's, it's a flyer. And it's not hurting their cap. Derek Rose comes off the books after this season. But that points up the real question, which is, well, then why are you doing this? You're a rebuilding team. You've got all these intriguing young players, Quickly, and Knox, and Barrett, and Toppin. I think Frank Nielakina is still hanging around somewhere. Um, what exactly is a late career Derek Rose doing for you? And before anybody says the words mentor or leader, is there anything that Derek Rose is bringing to the table that Alfred Payton can't already give uh, Emmanuel Quickly at that position or that Taj Gibson can't give Emmanuel Quickly and the other young guys just as, as an overall veteran, not by position, but just in general? Like, what is it there? Because Derek Rose was a, an MVP 10 years ago, is he more qualified to impart wisdom to Emmanuel quickly? Like, I don't, I don't see what he has added to them. And if the idea is, well, we, we want one more solid piece in the backcourt to make a run at the eighth seed or the play-in or whatever, I guess fine, I guess. But I'll tell you, I got a lot of friends who are Knicks fans because I live in New York and I also spend too much time on Twitter and I know a lot of New Yorkers. And the vast majority of them are concerned with exactly what you underlined, Chris. This can't take minutes away from Emmanuel quickly. The, everything right now should be about development. I don't even, it's easy for me to say I don't care about them making the playoffs because I'm not a Knicks fan. It doesn't bother me one way or the other. But Nick, there are some Knicks fans who would very much like to be not only developing the young guys, but also make the playoffs as a, as a kind of a short-term payoff and a sign that they're making progress and are moving in the right direction, that they're respectable again. Like, that's all valid. But if you're getting Rose just to make a run at the eighth seed, and, it, and if it comes at the expense of quickly, yet to be seen, if it were to come at the expense of quickly, then yeah, that, I, I think that's the wrong move. To me, I got to be honest, it feels like Tom Thibodeau reaching for a security blanket. He wanted another one of his old guys and fine. But again, I don't know that this really moves the needle for the Knicks short term. Not certainly doesn't long term. Derek Rose isn't part of their future. And so it, it, it I, I, I don't hate it. I just don't quite get it. I'm a little curious why Derek Rose wanted it to be back in New York. To say his one season, what was it, in New York was a disaster. Disaster. Is an understatement. I mean, there was a lot of off-the-court stuff. Um, He quite literally quit on the team during that season. Like, that was a big story during that 16-17 season. And in the aftermath of that year, most people believed that his career was either over or on the cusp of being over. Now, he revitalized it in Minnesota, in Detroit, uh, to his credit. I mean, he figured some things out. He became a better three-point shooter. Uh, those things all work in his favor. But I'm a little surprised that Derrick Rose wanted to go back uh, to New York. I, I do think, like, I think he's a better player than Alfred Payton. You can certainly make the argument that he might be more reliable than... Um, you know, than someone like Austin Rivers. And I do think it's valuable having somebody that you trust, like Thibodeau clearly trusts Derrick Rose and vice versa. And I also don't, Howard, believe that it's it's not nothing to make a run at the playoffs. Because if you have all these young guys, getting into the playoffs has value. You know, they're, sure. they're not one of those teams in position where it's like, wow, they got into the playoffs, big deal. They get beaten the first round. Now where do they go? They're so capped out. They have so many bad contracts. This is a young team with no bad contracts that getting playoff experience for those young guys, I think, matters. It just comes down to, will we see Derrick Rose, as we've seen in years past, play more two-guard in this spot? Will we see him alongside quickly as opposed to 
replacing him at that position. I, I think that's certainly possible. Derrick Rose in Minnesota played alongside Jeff Teague, did the same thing with other point guards in uh, Chicago. I'm not buying into the leadership thing either. I don't know, you know, that's that to me, whatever. I, I just, but I do think as a player, he can bring some value into that mix. So I guess I'm going to be watching these next few weeks, you know, is quickly still getting all the rotation minutes that he's earned, or do we see Tom Thibodeau because he wants to win so badly, go back to, as you said, the security blanket and play Derrick Rose. Well, and I will just add one other thing on that, and it, it ties into what you were uh, alluding to about Derrick Rose's first time in New York, which is, Derrick Rose was pretty ball dominant that season. Now, maybe that's among the things he has reformed over the last couple of years. But I was told at the time that among Porzingis's grievances was the fact that Derrick Rose was dominating the ball too much and Porzingis wasn't getting enough opportunities. This is a young team with a bunch of guys who need reps, who need opportunities. Derrick Rose has never been known as some like, like elite playmaker. He was a scoring point guard who, you know, you know, would get some assists along the way because he'd break down defenses and then hit open guys. But this isn't the guy who comes in to like settle everybody down, organize the offense and make sure that RJ Barrett and, and Kevin Knox and, and the rest of these guys are getting fed. That's not, that's not been the way he's been constructed as a player in this league. So it's not just the minutes he might take away from quickly. Again, we don't know for sure. We'll see how Tibbs structures the rotation, but it is also potentially these shot opportunities and just the way the offense flows that could tilt toward him if he indulges his 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 uh old habits so we'll see yeah we'll see um he can be instant offense off the bench i think that's a role uh that would be valuable for the knicks but uh they're still a young team and they're still got to be focused on developing these young guys uh, as opposed to just squeezing whatever you can out of one season what's the easiest choice you can make window instead of middle seat picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket outsourcing business tasks you hate. What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. 
and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And guess what? So are we. Just in case you forgot, I'm Tori Deal. I'm a six-time finalist and a Challenge champion. And I'm Anissa Ferrer, and I've been gracing your screens for the last two decades. I am a veteran challenger and challenge all-star. And speaking of all-stars, All-Stars 4 is finally here. I'm going to be honest. I literally thought this day was never going to come. Well, the challenge gods have answered our prayers, and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, redemption seekers, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. Anyone can win, relationships matter, and only one all-star will claim the title of challenge champion. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's talk about the all-stars here, Howard. I want to divide it by conference, and how I want to do this is just to focus on the last couple few spots that are up for grabs, if you say. And we'll we'll start by kind of eliminating the obvious ones. And out West, I've counted 10 guys that I think are obvious. You can tell me if you disagree. Uh, LeBron, Jokic, Kawhi Leonard, Anthony Davis, Paul George, Rudy Gobert, Steph Curry, Luka Doncic, Damian Lillard, and Donovan Mitchell. That's 10 guys I have on my list as obvious candidates. Do you agree that those are, you know, more or less locks to make the team? Yeah, and we should note here, of course, before we get into the weeds, the fan balloting is continuing, of course. We've seen the first returns. The second returns come out on Thursday of this week. Um, The fan vote is only 50% of the vote. The other... 50% is 25% media, including you and I, who both have ballots, and 25% uh, players. And that will determine the five starters. So as as you and I are going through this, the listeners, just be aware, listeners, we're picking our our 12-man teams as if it's from scratch as opposed to this whole process that the league actually goes into. And of course, the coaches will pick the seven reserves for the two teams. But we're going to do the one through 12 thing because it's just more fun to start from scratch. So yes, I agree with you, Chris, on those 10 guys who are absolutely locks in the West as starters or reserves. And again, that's my, my list as I'm going down it. Curry, Lillard, LeBron, Anthony Davis, Kawhi, Luka, Donovan Mitchell, Paul George, Jokic, Gobert. That was the 10, right? Right. That's the 10. Now give me, Howard, your last two, because I think this is where there's uh, some variance, and I think there will be variance in who you and I uh, yeah. decide to pick. Yeah, this is where it got harder. This is where I got harder. So those 10 were pretty, I want to say easy, but um, I got there. And then I had five guys 
for those last two spots. I landed on Devin Booker and Brandon Ingram. Who you got? Uh, what? Well, explain to me what? Explain to me, give me your rationale on those All two right. first, and I'll give you mine. Okay. All right. So the Suns have been really good, especially of late. Devin Booker himself has been really good as of late, and is is a guy who you could argue had was All Star worthy for a while now, anyway. And there just there just hasn't been the room for him. And the Suns weren't good enough. Well, the Suns are good enough now. So if a Booker doesn't, if, if Devin Booker doesn't make it now, what's our rationale going to be to to deny him? I guess. Um, and of course, there's always more to it than that, right? Like if you lose out to somebody who's really good, like it's not just that it's not a, a Devin Booker snub. It just may be that you liked you know somebody else better. Um, but I think he's deserving, and I think he's even potentially a little bit overdue. Brandon Ingram is exactly as good as he was last year when he made the All Star team for the first time. The Pelicans are not, so that's a knock on him. But I just couldn't get to the point where I would elevate one of these other guys. So the other guys who were you know, on the list, like Mike Conley, are we really going to put a third Utah Jazz player in? Wasn't Oh, I wanted to vote for Mike Conley so bad. I know I you do. It. You, and I'll tell you why, you but love, man, I wanted to vote for Mike Conley. You love, so you love the Utah Jazz. There's no I mean, big, no, I, Mike Conley, how many years in a row is Mike Conley going to be the bridesmaid when it comes to All-Star? I know, I know. He should have like they, he should get like the lifetime achievement award or something at this stage. He, should, I mean, all those years in Memphis that he deserved it too. Um, and so, like Conley, De'Aaron Fox is coming on really strong, and the Kings have been great recently. And I love De'Aaron Fox, and I, 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 I could have, you know, he was under consideration. John Morant hasn't played enough games. I know there's a lot of John Morant love, but he's played like I think ten games as we speak. Right. Um, not enough games. Chris Paul also very much responsible for the Suns breakthrough this season but if i'm going with one son i'm going booker over chris paul shea gilgis alexander is actually somebody you could consider and then there's this actually got easier for us in that we have two injuries that that did simplify this. so i just want to note for the record christian would absolutely would have deserved strong consideration if not for his injury cj mccollum was off to a great start before his injury if they were both healthy and playing right now we'd have an even tougher decision to make yep i agree with that um i went with ingram as well for that 11th spot for all the reasons that you kind of laid out there. He is statistically like the exact same player he was last year when he was an all-star. If you match him up against some of the other forwards in the NBA, he ranks among the top five, top 10 and all of those categories. Uh, So he's, he's having a great season in comparison to his peers Zion's the flashier name, of course. Zion's going to get a lot of consideration. Zion's going to get a big bump off that fan vote, ultimately. But I think that Brandon Ingram is more deserving of that all-star slot this year. It it could turn out that Ingram suffers, too, because the Pelicans aren't very good or aren't as good as we expected. But yeah, to me, I I wanted to pick one of those two guys, and Ingram was the one. I took De'Aaron Fox over Devin Booker for that 12th spot. Wow. It was a tough one. Booker, his numbers are down from last year. That, in part, I'm sure, is due to a new backcourt mate who is more ball-dominant than his previous year's backcourt mate. I mean, Ricky Rubio was the ultimate get-the-ball-out-of-my-hands-pass-first type of point guard who, as he told me in the bubble, you know, saw it as his only responsibility to make Devin Booker better. Chris Paul is in a different place. That doesn't mean they're not a better team with Chris Paul. Of course they are. But it's caused Devin Booker's numbers to slip a little bit. I look at Fox, 
And it's a combination of Fox's numbers, which are excellent this year, right around 23, 24 points per game. His three-point shooting is up from the high 20s a year ago into the mid-30s this year. And as you noted, the Kings are starting to play better basketball. And I'm looking around at that team, and I'm thinking, where would they be without De'Aaron Fox? Like, below Minnesota in the the bottom of the Western Conference standings? Like, De'Aaron Fox is one of the most valuable players to his team in this league. So I gave that to De'Aaron Fox with a slight edge uh, over Devin Booker. I had the other same other guys on my list of, of would-bees. Zion was there. CJ McCollum was there. Ja Morant was there. And of course, Mike Conley was there. But De'Aaron Fox, to me, I think he just edges out the field to get that 12th spot. Yeah, my, my bad. I, Zion was also on, on my list. Um, but, but yeah, did, did not include him, obviously. But yeah, uh, uh, certainly worthy of... of a passing thought. Um, so Booker, I know there's been this, this sense that his uh, he's tailed off a little from last year and, and, and it's true. He's taking two fewer free throws per game than last season. He's only taking one field goal attempt or excuse me, half of a field goal attempt. He's down from 18.3 attempts to 17.8. And so his scoring is a couple points less, three points less He's still shooting the same from three and about the same from two. Like his, his efficiency is about the same. His assists are down, but you expect that with Chris Paul there. I mean, I, I don't know that it's a, a, a massive dip or, or, or even significant dip. It is, it is a dip. <laughs> but uh, but that could Bo- be, that, that's all you really need sometimes to, when, when it's that close. Yes. Right? Like, you right. know, I mean, it really is that close in my mind anyway, between uh, Sacramento, I mean, between Fox and, and Booker. Yeah, and that's the thing, folks. Like when we're making these lists, when we're trying to, to sort this stuff out, it does sometimes come down to like who played more games, who played more minutes. Maybe it is just a, a you know a couple of points off the, the the field goal percentage or a couple of points off of your your previous year. Like you do have to find a way to distinguish it. Although comparing Booker to himself to disqualify him or put him behind Fox as opposed to comparing him to Fox, yeah. Um, but they're like they're they're really closely in line. Booker's averaging twenty three and a half points. De'Aaron Fox twenty three. So it, it's almost identical. Uh, Booker four point three assists. Fox six point five. He's supposed to be averaging more. He's the point guard for that team. They're averaging about the same number of rebounds. Their effective field goal percentages with within a few points of each other. Um, like it's 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 a really close call. And both teams are having what look like breakthrough seasons as we sit here. Um, the Suns at 14 and 9, the Kings at 12 and 11. So, if we're going to start- two games, two games separate these teams by the way in the yeah. standing. So, it's right. you know, So, if not- we're looking at, at the, yeah, like we could Sorry. you could use you could use wins to decide to de- to determine, you know, and and, and push uh Booker ahead a little bit on well, the Suns have been a little bit better as a team. Um but man, the Kings have been on fire. They've won 7 of 8 as we record this. And they just uh these they've won four in a row including uh Boston, Denver and the Clippers. Like they're not the Kings aren't messing around. Like they're they're like those are legit. That's not like we sometimes see this, Chris, where like some team gets on a roll and oh, they won seven of the last eight, ten of twelve, or whatever. And you look at it and it's like they've beaten all the really bad teams, and it's not meaningless, but it's not this is meaningful. Like they they beat three of the best teams in the league, Boston, Denver, and the Clippers. So the Kings are legit. Darren Fox is legit. Um, listen, I have no problem with going Fox over over Booker. I thought Booker was um was more deserving at this point. And also a little, like we do do this a little bit, like the guy who feels overdue. You sometimes feel like, you know what? I, 
Fox is just getting to all-star level. He's going to have his chances. We'll, we'll let him get it next year. You know, we'll like, and that's, I think that's partially what's happened to Booker too, is that like on some level, people have probably figured and the coaches when they're doing the reserves figure, he's young, he'll, he'll get his time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, not that he, not that uh, Fox really wants to go. Apparently, be based on his public <laughs> comments, but uh, I think he'll he's go. Worthy of it. But again, I wouldn't have a problem with Booker making the team either. It is that close. I just gave a slight edge uh, to De'Aaron Fox. In part, maybe it's the timing has something to do with it. With the way the, the Kings are playing right now, uh, I feel like he's worthy of recognition. All right, let's look at the Eastern Conference side of this ledger here, and I believe Howard. I only have like seven. I consider locks for this team. It's Durant, Giannis, Embiid, Jason Tatum, and Jalen Brown, DeMontis Sabonis, James Harden, and Trey Young. Let me add that up. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Eight guys, I think, are locks. I guess we start there. Do you think, do you agree with those eight players being locks for the All-Star team? Yes. Uh, All eight of those were on my list. One of them was my very last pick. Okay. All right. but, let, let, me, but let me go first here. Let me jump in with the right. rest of, of my team first here. You can weigh in uh, after that. So uh, at number nine, I'm, this is no particular order. I'm not going 9, 10, 11, 12 here. I'm just going to go through my list that I have in front of me. I'm going to add Julius Randle to the All-Star team because somebody wow. in New York deserves something for the way the Knicks have played <laughs> at this point. And Julius Randle cooled off after one of the best months you've seen, like best month of the season, one of the best months of the season for any player. But I got to put Julius Randle in that mix to reward the Knicks for how well they've played uh, this year. He might've been like the 12th guy uh, on that list. Bam Adebayo makes the team. Uh, Miami's been disappointing, but Bam continues to be one of the best uh, big men, both ends of the floor uh, in this league. Chris Middleton, I think makes the team. Middleton's numbers are up across the board uh, from last year, and the Bucks haven't been as great as they've been in the regular seasons in years past. It's been something of a growing pain, especially defensively uh, with that team. But I think Chris Middleton uh, deserves uh, a spot on the All Star team. And my last, I guess this would be like eleven and twelve. Eleven and twelve were really hard with this group, Howard. I'll, I'll let you kind of give yours in a second. But I thought eleven and twelve were really, really tough with this group. I got to give it to Tobias Harris in that 12 spot. Tobias Harris, he should never play with for any coach but Doc Rivers ever again. It just seems like <laughs> when Tobias Harris is aligned with Doc Rivers, he plays like an all-star. And this year, he's right around 20 points per game. He's shooting the three. And I'm looking at Philadelphia as they jostle for the top spot in the Eastern Conference. They deserve more than one guy, right? And Simmons, his numbers are okay this year. I don't know that this is the year you give Ben Simmons that all-star nod, but somebody else has to get an all-star nod on that 76ers team, and I got to give it to Tobias Harris, who is you know one of those guys a couple of years ago, you're like, wow, we're paying Tobias Harris that much money. This year, he looks like the guy that earned that much money. So Harris and Julius Randle are my 11th and 12th guys on this uh, from the Eastern Conference. All right, so I'm just double checking here. Okay, yeah, that's right. All right, so we have we have exactly two that we did not over. So we we agree on ten of the twelve. Okay. Your last two are Julius Randle, Tobias Harris. They were certainly both on my list of considerations, but I went with two, two pretty polarizing players. I think Kyrie Irving and Bradley Beal both made my twelve. Um, so here's here's the rationale, and this is 
like I, I'm not, I won't say that I'm entirely comfortable with either of these for a variety of reasons, but Kyrie on the numbers alone, 27 and a half points per game, 4.8 rebounds, 4.7 assists. He's shooting 43% on threes. He's got a, a, a for those who, who, who dig the advanced stats, his effective field goal percentage is 606, which is very strong. He's shooting 50, 40, 90. Kyrie Irving's at 50, 40, 90 right now and is averaging 27 and a half points a game. Where I'm uncomfortable, not just that he obviously, he, he left the team for a little bit. And if anybody wanted to knock him on that one, like I'm not, I'm not criticizing because we still don't know exactly what was going on then. Um, and I've been, I've been consistent and careful about that. I'm not judging him on that. But I do, like attendance matters. I do usually downgrade a guy if he's missed a ton of games. And so I'm not entirely comfortable. The numbers are just so off the charts that sometimes that overwhelms other factors. Um, and I'm not certain that the Nets, given their so-so record, like it's good but not great, I'm not sure they really deserve three. And Harden and Durant are no-brainers. Harden and Durant have to make it. And so if a, if, if a net is going to lose that, it probably should be Kyrie. But man, 27.5 points a game on, and, and going 50-40-90. Um, Bradley Beal... Leads the NBA in scoring. By the way, by the way, on on, on this subject because it's it came up in my mind about how you consider Harden since he played for yeah. both conferences. It's I was weird. told I was told by people in the NBA that while there's no hard and fast rule here, generally you consider the totality of how they've played. So yeah. that's that's why Harden is on my team. Before before you continue, Harden, I'm, I'm going to sure. give myself a mulligan here because you're going to talk about Bradley Beal. I, I got to put Bradley Beal on the team. I, I may have overlooked him <laughs> in my... I did overlook him in my, my when I was writing this stuff down. I'm going to put Bradley Beal in, and I'm sorry, I just gave you props, Julius Randle, but I'm going to take you off the team. Bradley Beal <laughs> that was over... Quick. Uh, sorry, Julius Randle. The honeymoon's over. The honeymoon's over. You're averaging 22 points per game. You're playing unbelievable for that Knicks team, but a guy... And I'll let you talk about Beal, but Beal's having just a phenomenal offensive season. Despite the fact the Wizards are bad, uh, you can't have an all-star team without Bradley Beal. So Bradley Beal is my uh, my 10th or 11th man, and Tobias Harris slides into that 12 spot. So, all right, so, so Beal um, leads the NBA in scoring. Like, to leave the, the NBA's leader in scoring out of the all-star game would yeah. be astounding. I already thought he got a little bit screwed last year. He should have made the All-Star team last year. He should have made All-NBA last year. He was, I think, on my ballot as third-team All-NBA at guard last year. He's averaging 33 points a game, five rebounds, four assists. And if you want to say, yeah, but the Wiz, the, like the Wizards suck, well, I, like no argument. But as much as we, we start parsing this out and, and trying to figure out how to value winning and all this, it's the All-Star game, not All-NBA. Like winning matters a ton for MVP. Winning matters a fair amount for All-NBA as well. But All-Star, first of all, it's, it's mid-season-ish, so you don't have a full season worth of, of games. So if a team is in a hole, they haven't had a chance to rally yet. Like, you're basing it on a really small sample, especially this season. And so it's not the totality. It, it's, and, so I, I, and the Wizards have had all kinds of issues, right? They lost, like, two straight weeks of games because of COVID protocols. Russell Westbrook has been banged up. They, you know, uh, were without Hachimura for a while. They lost Thomas Bryant. It's not Bradley Beal's fault. He, he's the franchise star. He bears some responsibility. That's fair. It is not his fault that he is stuck on this crappy team that I still expect he will be demanding a trade off of sometime in the near future. <laughs> in the meantime, when you are one of the best players in the league, one of the best at your position, and you're leading the league in scoring, 
you got to make the all-star team. Like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to get all huffy and say, you got to be on a winning team. Like that's, that's preferable, but it's not across the board. We make exceptions all the time for this. Every year, there's a couple of guys who make the all-star team from losing teams. It's not, un, it, it, it's, it's routine. So we should not hold that against him. So where you and I end up coming down to here, uh, and, and rest in peace, Julius Randall's all-star nod that you nearly got from Chris Mannix. <laughs> oh, it was a good um, five minutes there, Julius. Good five minutes. It was, here's the thing. Like, let's just, let's, let's uh, spend a moment for our other contestants. Um, <laughs> Randall was deserving of consideration. Zach Levine, deserving of consideration, having a great year yeah. for the Bulls. There were, there were a lot, Howard, I want to jump into this too in a second, but there were a yeah. lot of guys that are worthy among players in the Eastern Conference. Fair. Right. You mentioned Ben Simmons. I thought about him. You 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 did put in Tobias Harris. I I seriously considered him. We'll talk about why I decided to leave him off. Malcolm Brogdon absolutely has been balling his butt off and plays both ends of the court. Yep. And the Pacers have been, as usual, better than expected. Brogdon, I really wanted to get on there. Couldn't get him on there either. Gordon Hayward. Gordon Hayward, the 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 most mocked offseason signing in uh, late 2020, Gordon Hayward deserves it. Jeremy Grant. Jeremy Grant is having a phenomenal statistical season in Detroit. Again, a losing team. And so are you going to say it's empty calories, whatever? I don't know. All I know is Jeremy Grant is playing incredible. The numbers are great. Colin Sexton, you could have considered. Uh, Vucevic, maybe Siakam. Um, like, I, like, all those guys were at least worth discussion. I, I, I jotted all of them down. I looked at all of them. I did a thousand different basketball reference uh, player comparison searches. Um, those guys all deserved consideration as well. So before anybody gets been out of shape out about their guy not making it, like that, it's that hard. There were that many worthy candidates in the East. Oh, I'll tell you, the guy that gave me some consternation with Toronto was not Siakam, but Fred Van Vliet. Like Van Vliet's averaging almost 21 sure. points per game. He's shooting... Uh, right around 38% from three, shooting around, uh, what is it, 40-plus percent, 42% from the field. And he started to come on with some big performances over the last couple of weeks. Siakam, conversation for another day, another podcast, but I don't know what the hell happened to Siakam's shot. Like, it's just like the the work stoppage hit back in March, and it just disappeared. Like, it was gone in the bubble, and now this year from three, he's shooting like 28%. I, I couldn't give him a ton of consideration uh, for that. Um, I thought about Jeremy Grant, but there is that empty calories argument. Like the Pistons are just so bad that it's tough to give anybody a a spot on an All Star team. There, Vucevic, kind of the same argument in a way, you know, with uh, with Orlando and the way they've played, especially the last since uh, Markel Fultz went down. Um, it's tough. I- I'm not going to argue much with different guys being selected for those last uh, couple of spots. The, my argument for Harris, and I don't know if did you give your argument against Harris. My argument for Harris is largely based, as I said at the top, like, you, you can't just have Joel Embiid on a team that is, you know, by All-Star Week could be the number one team in the Eastern Conference. And, and Harris, to me, has been uh, just as valuable as Ben Simmons with that team. Yeah. Um, and he's flirting with 50, 40, 90. He's, he's 51% yeah. from the field, 440 from, from three, which I believe is a career high. Um, eight points from last year. Like, he's shooting yeah. eight points better from three, and he was a pretty good three-point shooter last year. Like, he shot 36, 37% from three last season, up, yeah. up eight points from then. It's, 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 it's insane. 
Um, and um, and he's he's shooting eighty six point seven percent from the from the foul line. So he he's got a ways to go to get to the fifty forty ninety. But still fifty forty eight sixty seven, <laughs> still pretty good. Averaging twenty points, seven and a half rebounds, three assists. And he's been really key for them. And as we know, he's a he's an important go-to guy because down the stretch of games, Ben Simmons uh, does not want the ball in his hands for more than about 1.2 seconds. Uh, get it to somebody else who wa- actually wants to shoot. Um, and you're right. Like the Sixers, as good as they've been, best record in the East, probably deserve a second guy. I think, Chris, where it came down for me was I just – like. It's the, for the All-Star game, we generally go with the guys whose numbers pop off the page. Now, there are some, uh, some uh, exceptions all the time. Rudy Gobert is an exception, right? Rudy Gobert is just the totality of what he does for the Jazz. He defines their identity in so many ways because of his defense. He makes the Jazz who they are, and so we don't need gaudy stats from him. But the offensive-oriented players, which is most All-Stars, frankly, you usually you're looking for the stats that leap off the page. 20 points and seven and a half rebounds and three assists is nice. Shooting 440 from three is nice. I just like Tobias Harris. He he's earned it based on the Sixers' success. He's earned it based on his contributions to that success. I just couldn't leap to the idea of Tobias Harris all-star over say Kyrie Irving or some of the other candidates we had who, you know, maybe, maybe I'm getting caught up with the idea that the all-star game is also an exhibition and we want like the guys who, who bring a little flash and flair to the game like that factors into it. Certainly factors into the fan voting. Um, so you're gonna what you're doing, Howard, is you're giving the Nets, who are sitting as we record this in third in the Eastern Conference, three All Stars, and the Sixers one, who are sitting at the top. But it does happen. It, <laughs> I no, know. I get no. That. Seriously, Chris. It like it. It happens. There are years where a team like. Um, how many years were, you know, was it just Giannis and not Middleton? Like, I, I, I'm asking that not actually knowing. But I think we've had years of, with Giannis and not. Right. Like, yeah. sometimes it's, sometimes it's one, one team solely defined by one player, and then they have a bunch of really good guys. And so it's not – that framework makes it look bad. Yes. <laughs> How can the best team in the East have only one and the third best team in the East have three? But it's because Kyrie Irving was already – a perennial all-star and Durant and Harden were already among the best players in the league. Like it's not our fault. They all got jammed on the same team. Um, individually. I think they've earned it as a team, as a collective, arguably not. Um, I think if I'm going to throw off Kyrie in favor of Tobias or somebody else, I don't think it would be because I'm worried about too many nets and them not earning it. Um, even as much as I don't like those optics. If I'm going to throw him off, I'm going to throw him off because he's only played 16 games. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it'll be a five game cushion for Tobias right now um, when it comes to games played. Yeah. And then look, that, that generally matters to me a lot. I just, you know, I, I, the Kyrie's numbers are just so insane. And um, the, the role he plays for that team, even with two other stars, I just think has been incredible. But look, whatever reason you're gone, you're sick you're injured, you have personal business, whatever it is, showing up matters. And it, it, it factors into the way we do awards every year. At the end of the season, it factors into all-star selections. Um, I'll be curious to see, you know, does Kyrie get in on the fan vote? Do will the coaches pick him as a reserve? Look, he's not going to make my real ballot, okay? And let me make this very, very clear. Um, when you and I turn in our ballots on Tuesday to keep Mark Broussard at NBAPR happy, um, my ballot for the five starters that will contribute to the media vote, which is 25% of the total vote, um, will not include Kyrie. 
Uh, I will very likely be putting Harden and Jalen Brown at the two guard spots. Um, Possibly Harden and Beal. I'm not, I'm not totally locked in on that yet. Um, I feel like you got, this is going off topic, but Jalen Brown needs to be rewarded somehow. Like Jalen Brown has had a ridiculous season while the Celtics have been without Kemba Walker for a month. And then Jason Tatum went out for a couple of weeks. Like Jalen Brown has been, the mainstay there. And his numbers are ridiculously good as well. I mean, Beal, Beal's numbers are astronomical. Don't get me wrong. But the Celtics are winning. And Jalen Brown is, I think, unquestionably the reason why. Like, he is the driving force behind them winning at this point. And his defense matters a ton too, yeah. right? Like, if, you, if you're going to start, this is, right. And this is why, at least initially, as I was like, you know, ju- you know kind of mapping this all out yesterday for this podcast, I put Jalen Brown as one of my two starters for the purposes of this discussion or this exercise, because what he has over the other guards who are under consideration, Kyrie, Bradley Beal, Trey Young, anybody else you want to name, Zach Levine, all the other guys we talked about earlier, like Jalen Brown, not only is contributing to one of the best teams in the East with all of those numbers, but he also plays a critical defensive role at a high level. And so it's, it's, like I say, right as of right now, if I had to turn in my ballot today instead of Tuesday, I think it's Harden and Jalen Brown at the two guard spots in the East. Yeah, a lot of competition, though. Guess we'll find out in the next few weeks. Howard, always good to do this, man. We'll talk next week. Always a pleasure, my friend. All right, so we may not know for years which side won in the trade involving Houston and Brooklyn. What we do know right now is that the Cleveland Cavaliers were big winners as part of that deal. The Cavs gave away a late first-round pick, and what they got in return was Jared Allen, a 22-year-old center who has uh, emerged as a key contributor in a young Cleveland team that is competing for a playoff spot. Allen will be a free agent at the end of the year, but... He certainly fits into what the Cavaliers are looking to do long-term with young guys in their early 20s like Colin Sexton and Darius Garland and a handful of others in that mix. Allen has had a really interesting first few years in the NBA coming to a Nets team that had no expectations, helping them become a two-time playoff team, being part of the Kyrie Irving team last season, and then ultimately being traded away from Brooklyn. So I wanted to catch up with Jared Allen, and here is our conversation. So Jared, it feels like, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, but it feels like you have kind of come full circle in your NBA career. You began it on a young Nets team with you, Spencer Dinwiddie, Karras, and you were a big reason that team made two straight playoff appearances. Now, Here you are with Cleveland, another young team, Colin, Darius, Isaac Okoro. Does it feel like almost a full circle? Is is that one way to look at it? Uh, It's funny that you bring it up. I was just thinking about that earlier this week. Uh, Like you said, it's been a full circle. (laughs) I feel like I've been in the situation that Cleveland is in currently. Young team, plays hard, still has some things to figure out, but still has a bright future ahead of them. I think a lot of people, when the trade happened, were surprised to hear and learn that you were still just 22 years old. I mean, it does feel like you've lived like an entire NBA life already. Uh, I'm also, it's been 
three and a half years now. Been in since I was I just turned nineteen. So I came in when I was young. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, does it feel like that though? Like that you've that you've all, you've had that three and a half, four years. I mean, does it feel even longer given kind of how it's all gone? It definitely feels longer. Uh, a lot of experience in the league, a lot of playing against high-level names. You know, I was thrown into the fire when I was a rookie. Had mm-hmm. having to guard some of the best players. So definitely feels like I've been around a while. What was that rookie experience like? I mean, yeah, guys, it's kind of a cliche question, but guys get asked all the time about their sort of like, wow, I'm in the NBA moment. What was it for you? Uh, wow, I'm in the NBA moment. Uh, I would say my first while wow, as in media, it was my first two starts. And granted, I was 19, you know, young, still learning the NBA. My first start, I had to start against Kristoff uh, Rzingis. And then the following night, I had to play against Joel Embiid. And then so just having those two matchups, it was like, wow, like I'm, I'm really here now. That, that's like the full, like, you're a great defensive player, but that's the full breadth of defense, right? Like, the seven foot three guys shooting threes, and then the guy that can shoot, but he's going to punish you on the inside. Uh-huh. I was just some young, scrawny 19 year old, man. <laughs> I had those two. Um, you, you were born in San Diego, but what, you were about eight years old when you moved to Texas? Yep, just about. What brought your family there? Uh, I still have family. Uh, all across the coast, northern, San Francisco, Oakland, Sacramento, just all across the all across California. Do you consider yourself now more of a California guy or a Texas guy? I, I say I was born in California, but I'm a Texan at heart now. I'm a Texan. <laughs> <laughs> the um, when you were growing up there and. You know, going to high school in the Austin area and then college. Like, that was the height of the Spurs dynasty back in those days. I mean, how, how much was your kind of basketball knowledge shaped by by what was going on in San Antonio? Uh, that's really where all of my knowledge started. I started in the playoffs. You're either rooting for San Antonio, which I always was, or if they weren't playing, I was rooting for Houston. Mm-hmm. So it was always just rooting for Texas teams, and then you had Dirk. So – it was all the slower, more fundamental players, you know, make sure you have the right plays. Nothing was really too flashy. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that probably carried over to me now. Well, Texas was, I mean, that was big man country back then, right? I mean, you mentioned Dirk. I mean, Duncan was still around. Houston Yao was playing at a high level. You probably, you got the full, full complement of big men there. Absolutely. And that's really how I grew up, just learning post moves trying to emulate that touch off the backboard that Tim Duncan has, just trying to do all of that. How'd that go for you early on? Uh, not so well. Not so, <laughs> not so well. I wasn't coordinated, so I couldn't do half the stuff that he was doing at his old age. You know, when, when you're in Texas as a kid, I mean, Texas is football country. What was it like kind of you know being a basketball player in football country? Uh, you kind of adapted I ended up playing football in seventh grade as a tight end. That was just my one year of doing what all my friends were doing in seventh grade. But I'm not I'm not a football player. It's too hot for me out there in that weather. <laughs> so next year I'm done. <laughs> what what kind of football player were you in seventh grade? I mean, how tall were you then? 
seventh grade. I was probably like six two, six three, mm-hmm. and I was a tight end. I caught one pass, ran into the end zone, and that was my one shining moment. <laughs> I mean, six two, six three. You're only catching one pass. I mean, one pass. I told you I wasn't coordinated. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what was it that – I mean, was it just your size that pushed you into basketball? I know your father was a pretty good player, played overseas for, for a number of years. I mean, what was it that pushed you in that direction? Uh, you know, my father, he never really wanted to push push us. He always gave us, like, the silent nudge to go play. But anytime we wanted to go practice, he would be there. It was really just, like, watching like, – like we were talking about, watching the guys in Texas, watching the Spurs in Houston – Dallas, just watching what they were doing, all the big men there and wanting to emulate that. When when you were thinking about colleges, uh, you know, Texas is known as a football school. Was it just being close to home that appealed to you? No, I really, I looked everywhere. Uh, my mom, she played a big part in wanting to choose the best school for me. So we didn't say that, oh, going to Texas is just the closest. We looked at education we looked at what's the city like we looked at absolutely everything and ut just happened to be the best uh stepping stone for my career to be not only the best basketball player but the best human what's a what's a shaka smart recruiting pitch look like uh so from what i heard my recruiting was a little unorthodox mm-hmm. <laughs> if you ask him was it like normal players he uh, took a slower approach to me. He didn't try to bring me with all the flashy bells and whistles. I really knew the campus living in Austin for that long. I knew all the facilities and knew basically the whole campus is downtown. So it was really just trying to get to know him and get to know all the other players. Mm-hmm. How did you know it was it was time to, to come out? I mean, you'll only play the one year at UT. Team-wise, it wasn't a great year for you guys that season. Um, what, what went into that decision for you? Uh, it was a family decision, half and half. They wanted me to make this decision, but they would give their honest input. And it just seemed like all the pieces were lining up. I had I ended up finishing off at UT uh, pretty well. And then just seeing my name in the draft, you know, I was lucky enough that that was the first year you could test the waters. So definitely took advantage of that, and everything looked into my liking. So we decided to pull the trigger. What were you hearing then when when you were testing the waters? What kind of stuff were you hearing? Uh, I was going to be in the lottery round. You know, I was definitely going to be a project, but like some the lottery teams needed project at that time. Mm-hmm. And when you fell on draft night, did what? I mean, what what was going through your mind there? <laughs> Was it like, I should have gone back to UT for another year? No, uh, I wasn't thinking that. I wasn't surprised because around that time, I remember hearing that teams will put a stamp on you. And the stamp that I got was, he does not love basketball. (laughs) So I wasn't surprised that I fell, but I'm glad that I get to prove people wrong now. That that he doesn't love basketball is one of the (laughs) – that's that's up there – that's up there with one of the dumber critiques. Like that and, and the overemphasis on – and you would know this too as a big man. The overemphasis on wingspan. They used to drive me crazy too. Like what's his wingspan? He gotta, he's going to fall. Cody Zeller got destroyed his year because he had a, a, a lower wingspan. But the guys that get tagged with the don't love the game 
are usually guys, and you can tell me if, if you heard differently, but I, I feel it's usually guys that have other interests that like, mm-hmm. you know, do things other than, you know, just eat, drink and sleep basketball. And somehow that's it. it somehow that's that's that, that makes it a bad thing. I never really understood that. I, I feel like it's a, a more old school mentality. You know, uh, it's just back then that's all that you really, people really talked about. But nowadays you see a lot of players having different interests, a lot of players, you know, expanding and opening up about their lives. So now it's more common. How did you answer those questions when, when they came? I'm sure they came up at the Combine and, you know, in interviews with teams. How did you address them? I just, I told them the truth. I told them I have different interests. I told them that, hey, I like doing things outside of basketball. But when it comes down to business, I'm going to be in, in the gym. Uh, and then towards the end, it's like, damn, I'm still getting the same question. So it's, it's like, come on. I I'm just felt like a tape recorder saying the same answer. It's always <laughs> – and I, I live in Boston, so I, I, I know Jalen Brown went through this a lot because Jalen's another guy with a lot of off-the-court interest that – and he had the same kind of thing. Like, is he as committed as he needs to be? It's like if you if you have other things on your plate, like it somehow it somehow affects how you, your commitment to the game is, is the perception anyway. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, never really understood that. When when you when you got to the NBA though, and you know you go into a Brooklyn team that was in such a weird situation where everyone's still talking about you know the picks they're giving off to Boston and what position, how long it's going to take for them to get back. What was that first year like for you when you're there with? You know Spencer and Karras, who are you know first and rookie year players, just like yourself. Right. It was actually a perfect a perfect experience for me. I was able to go in my first what thirty games or something like that. Mozgov was in front of me. He was uh, he was coming from uh, L.A. Just being in Cleveland, so he was a great bet, teaching me just how to live the NBA lifestyle, how to play, and playing with the young guys like Karis, Spencer, and Joe at that time, we were all growing together, you know. And then you add D'Lo in there. D'Lo, mm-hmm. you know, having taught by Kobe Bryant, rest his soul, he was able to, like I feel, bring some of his mentality to the team and help elevate my game. Did it feel for you guys somewhat liberating that there was no expectations on you? I mean, when you guys made those playoff appearances, it was almost like, wow, this team, without those top three picks, was able to do incredible things. Uh-huh. Absolutely. And it felt good because it was it was homegrown. You know, we grew together. We've been through the trenches together. Uh, one of the sayings was Brooklyn Grit. And I feel like we all took that by heart, diving on the floor and everything. And in the locker room, we're all together, you know, learning, laughing, and having that experience. You had to know that at some point that they would use some of that cap flexibility, sign guys. I mean, when did that start to kind of creep in your head that, you know, things could change beyond just kind of the homegrown way you were you were built? I would say uh, once we reached the playoffs, mm. and then at that time you hear all these rumors about, what Brooklyn could be if they added a bunch of different stars, uh, what the future could hold for Brooklyn. They're already a talented team. They just need something else to rise above the next level. And that's when we knew that things were going to change. Do you take that? I mean, it's like when some people say, 
you know, you, you need more to get to the next level. Like, how about you give us a few years where we're like 23, 22, 21, maybe let us try that. Yeah. You know, it's, it's kind of like, man, uh, I feel like we could do it, but at the end of the day, you could get, well, they didn't even have to go out. The three people wanted to sign here, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Kev, Kyrie and DeAndre. So it's like, can you really blame them for wanting to process five years earlier? I can't blame them. <laughs> no. When did, um for you personally, when did you start thinking that, you know, Brooklyn may not be my long-term home, that something may happen, whether it's a trade or, if, you know, the end of the year comes and you leave via free agency. When did you start thinking that? Uh, probably around bubble time, maybe before that, because I knew extension time was coming. I didn't know how that would work out. We just signed. We had a lot of money on the books. I didn't know how much I was going to get. And a lot of things were just changing in the whole, whole atmosphere of Brooklyn for the better. I, you know, I, I wish them the best. No, no hard feelings towards them. Uh, it just felt like things were going in. See, I still wanted to be there with them. It's just, it's just time to split. The, uh, you mentioned the extension stuff. Was that a stressful time for you, kind of trying to figure out what to do in that situation? Uh, not really. Uh, I wanted my agent to handle that. We had a lot more things going on in Brooklyn to handle than that. So I, I didn't let that get to me. I just wanted to play basketball. Did the Harden chatter get to you? I mean, that started right around Christmas you know, when the reports about Brooklyn started to surface, I mean, how did that affect you? Uh, it didn't affect me too much. It definitely was on the back of my mind. Like, Hey, I could be going to Houston. Yeah. I could be definitely changing uh, locations. I mean, it was Houston. I was back in Texas. I wasn't mm. too, too bad, but, <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, but we all, we all, came together and were like, let's not let this affect how we play in Brooklyn. Let's just play our own basketball how we always have. When you hear Cleveland, that you're going there, what's your reaction? <laughs> I didn't know how to feel. I go, Cleveland was one of the last thoughts in my head where I was going like, wow, <laughs> Cleveland? I'm like, okay. I wasn't, I hadn't been keeping up with them in the standings. Uh, you know, you hear, I'm just going to be honest, you hear about them the last two years. They they weren't the best team, you know, but when I came to them, they it was turned around. It seemed like a whole different organization. It, it, it really is, at least in the last, you know, year or so. I mean, you've got a chance to play for JB for a while. I think he's really underrated as a coach and has been for, for years. And now you're starting to see Colin and, and Darius, along with some other guys, veteran guys too, you know, start to play up to their potential, which kind of like brings me back to the original question about, you know, this group compared to those early Nets groups you were on. Is it, does it compare favorably to, to that group? I mean, how would you match them up? Oh, uh, I think it'd be, it'd be a good matchup. Uh, we both played hard. We are both young. We both still make mistakes. You know, I'm not saying that we're perfect in Cleveland. We still have a lot to work on. But, ooh, yeah, that'd be a good matchup. I don't want to say <laughs> who would take it, but I think it'd be it'd go to seven games in the playoff series. 
<laughs> so are you on this Cavs team as we record this now? Are you officially a power forward with this group when you play with Andre? <laughs> when I play with Andre, uh, I believe I am for the starting lineups. They said, and at Ford, center from Texas. You know, I was like <laughs> Ford, not a center. You know, it kind of, kind of struck me differently. So I guess, I guess a little bit. Yeah, I'm starting to move to that four spot. Having played against Andre and now with him, how would you explain his rebounding ability? Like every single year, you look at the final rebounding numbers, and he's right there at the top, 15, 16, 17 per game. As a, as a fellow big man, how would you explain his ability to rebound? It's unnatural. I don't know what it is, what spell he put on that ball, but whenever that ball misses, it somehow ends up in his hands every single time. And by the time you look up at the first quarter, it's like, and he already got seven rebounds. Like, <laughs> like some people, like me, I only get that in the game. It's somehow they just all gravitate towards him. <laughs> is he a positioning guy, or is it is it his physicality? I mean, what what are those attributes that that make him good at that? Uh, it's both. Uh, you know, he's a big guy. Hard to move. Hard to take him off his spot. But he also knows where the ball is going to be when it goes up. He knows where to get to be. He knows where to put his body. He knows the timing of when it's going to come off. You are, you know, you've already established yourself as a really, really good defensive player early in your career. What have you tried to kind of bring to this group to to push him to a high level defensively? Because if you, I mean, look, if you can play great defense, it overcomes any issues you might have offensively. Uh, I was trying to bring some schemes that I feel like helped me and other guards in Brooklyn, just small things. I don't want to come in and change what they've been doing because they, they are doing great on defense. So just come in, bring rim protection, hopefully be able to switch out on some guards and be able to help them out in that standpoint. And just try to direct them, bring a certain level of physicality on that end too. Do you see Cleveland? I mean, you got a, a, a lot of decisions to make in the next six months or so. Obviously, you want to try to make the playoffs this season first and foremost, but do you – do you got a feel that Cleveland's a good spot for you early on? I mean, what's your vibe the first three or four weeks? First three or four weeks, it's been great. I've been having a lot of fun. I'm a guy that loves to have fun, enjoy playing basketball, and that's what they do here. They, you know, I'm friends with everybody on the team. There's no bad blood between anybody. Uh, room to grow for everybody. A team to build up with, like, like almost like in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Like we saw what we were building in Brooklyn. Love being there, love coming to work with them every day. And then now in Cleveland, it's like the same situation. Everybody's in the gym trying to get better. Everybody wants to win. Everybody's going to play hard, play their hearts out. And I'm here for all of that. No question. So you're in Denver right now as we're taping this uh, in a hotel room. Um, you were also over the summer in the bubble. I was in the bubble too for, for about 60, 70 days. Uh, got the full experience of that. Uh, having experienced the bubble, Jared, and now experiencing what this is, is one better than the other? Like if, if somebody came to you and said, Jared Allen, what do you want to do? You want to go into the bubble or continue doing this? What would your answer be? Ooh, it's hard, isn't it? It's not that's easy. A hard one. It's not easy. Because <laughs> now we get like tested two, three times a day and the bubble it was just, it was once. Mm-hmm. And it's, oh. Bubble, you get to sit out by that pool in the Florida weather. <laughs> that's a that's a high selling point. Uh, I might I'm gonna have to go with what we're doing now. 
really? season. Uh huh. The bubble. It wasn't. It wasn't bad. Just being stuck there for you know two three months, it can get kind of kind of old. And here you still get to travel and see different cities. Mm-hmm. How much has your life changed because of like what you can and can't do? I mean, obviously you want to avoid. I mean, forget even catching you know coronavirus. I mean, if you saw with Kevin Durant, like he's. I mean, the guy's around yeah. one guy, and he's you got to sit out for those six days. Right. Uh, my life hasn't really changed. Uh, I feel like I'm a pretty solitude type of guy. As long as I can go to Whole Foods, get my groceries, come home to cook, <laughs> and play my video games, then I'm I'm be living just fine. <laughs> Are you recognized in the Cleveland area Whole Foods at this point, or? No, not not yet, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> the six eleven guy with the afro isn't recognized. I'm, I'm a little shocked. I get a lot. I know I get a lot of looks. I know for sure, but <laughs> nobody's really approached me too much yet. It's got to be the mask, right? They can't tell with the. With the, with the it mask has on. to be. It has to be. <laughs> uh, last thing I want to ask you, and it's it's become the nickname of Cleveland the last couple of couple of weeks. Sexland, yes or no on that being a nickname. <laughs> I'm gonna say yes because I just love how corny it is. <laughs> I don't know who put it together, but I love that Larry Nance is starting to appeal it to the whole audience and Colin is jumping on board. I got the sense I listened to Colin on another show recently. Uh, he was talking with Zach Lowe, I think, and I don't think he loved it. Does he? Is he into it? I mean, what is? I, what's his feel on posted, it? He had a picture on Instagram that said "sexland." And <laughs> that's good enough confirmation for me. I mean, at this at this point, I want him to stay in Cleveland for a decade because that has to stick. Uh, I mean, you got now you guys got to win, and it could be, you know, the land could be sex land. It's a whole transition. Uh-huh. Start getting t-shirts. Gotta love it. <laughs> hey, Jarrett, uh, appreciate your time, man. Keep up the great work. I know you're. Uh, it's a trying season this year, but always great to talk to you, man. Good. Thanks for joining me. Uh, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. 
Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.